You're listening to Rounding at Rush, a Rush University Medical Center podcast that features the latest clinical advances, research, and innovations. I'm your host, Dan Dean. Our guest today is Dr. Webster Crowley, the chief of the section of cerebrovascular and endovascular neurosurgery, as well as the surgical director of the Comprehensive Stroke Center at Rush University Medical Center. He is also the director of the Endovascular Neurosurgery Fellowship. He joins the podcast today to talk about Rush's use of minimally invasive vascular and endovascular treatments, which can potentially provide patients with faster recovery times, less scarring, and a lower chance for developing complications after surgery. Dr. Crowley's research interests include stroke, aneurysm treatment, pseudotumor cerebri, and subarachnoid hemorrhage. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Crowley. Thanks, Dan. Happy to be here. A new technology that Rush began using in September 2021, just this past year, was the CorePath robotic system. What is the CorePath system and how is it currently used at Rush? Sure. So so the CorePath robotic system is uh, basically an endovascular robot. And so right now we have it at Rush. We we're one of the first five or six programs in the in the country to to get it for the applications that we're using it for. And essentially what it does is it's a robot which allows us to control catheters and wires for procedures that we would do on a daily basis. Currently, we are using them for diagnostic cerebral angiograms, and actually we can use them for carotid stents because they are indicated for more peripheral interventions. Uh, on the horizon, however, we're excited that that they are looking for um, for approval for us to perform interventional neuro procedures within the head, so cerebral uh, interventional procedures, beginning with kind of more simple stuff like aneurysms, and eventually it would be stroke. So now used as a diagnostic in the future could be used interventionally as well. So what is sort of the roadmap or the the timeline for using it in that interventional manner that you described. So they're uh, moving forward with it as we speak. So hopefully pretty shortly. It's really interesting and I think fun to think of the applications uh, for stroke particularly. And I think when we look at it and one of the reasons why we're excited to have it at, at Rush is that the idea is eventually when when stroke is approved for this, that that eventually past that remote stroke will be approved for this. And and using the robot, they've actually done um, uh, percutaneous coronary interventions, so heart catheterizations from miles and miles away. And so the way that we envision this at Rush is that is that by getting in kind of on the ground level, that we one of the one of the leaders in this technology, and when it goes to to stroke. Uh, remote strokes, we would, in theory, be able to place a uh, a machine, for instance, at satellite sites like Rush Copley, and uh, we would be able to perform stroke interventions from downtown on patients out at Copley. And I think kind of even more excitingly, uh, the idea of, of placing them in rural areas around the, the country, even the world, where we'd be able to perform stroke interventions on on people in very rural areas that don't have access uh, for for something like stroke where time really is brain and so getting getting them care as quickly as possible makes a huge difference we have the capacity at rush to diagnose stroke remotely i know not to treat it but we have the uh, the, the capability to 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 do that remotely 
Absolutely right. So we've we've got our telestroke system where our um, our stroke team will will speak with um, with physicians at different institutions and you know visit with them on video conferences and and interview the patients and and diagnose them with strokes there and and often at that point we then uh, you know have them send a, a patient over to to rush for us to to be able to intervene for patients where it's appropriate and so um, in theory we could put one of these robots at those telestroke sites and save them the time that it takes to transport and, and again, bring our ability to, for instance, to remove a clot for a patient who's having an acute stroke, bring that to them at their, uh, at, directly at their location. So just to provide some context about CorePath, as we talked about a minimally invasive diagnostic, eventually a minimally invasive, you know, interventional treatment. So how is this placed sort of on the the spectrum of other minimally invasive or remote procedures that we're talking about, is this completely novel and within only the neurosurgical realm or are there other disciplines in which this is a, a sort of a copy of the way that, that remote care is, is going? The robot actually began as a cardiac machine and, and was kind of adopted for, for neurosurgical or, or neurointerventional uh, uses. And so it's the same, it's the exact same robot. It's just a different kind of cartridge that, that you use. So, so cardiology, as with many things in interventional, led the way as far as testing out the, the remote interventions. So like I said, there's a proof of concept, actually a study in India where they performed cardiac interventions from, from miles away. And, and so that is, that is further along in the cardiac world than it is in the, in the neurosurgical world. Uh, but, but we see the future because of, of kind of the way that they've opened that door, I think. And then there's the benefit too, which we didn't talk about to the, to the surgeons who were actually performing the procedures. Can you just highlight that briefly? Yeah, absolutely. So from a um, kind of work ergonomic standpoint, right? So, so we actually are in a separate room, um, the, the area in the Andrew suite that we call the control room. So we, we are not um, wearing lead, which, which is fairly heavy, and I guess over the course of a lifetime can can uh, cause joint breakdown. Uh, we are further away from the from the radiation, and so things like, you know, um, people who are doing this very early may have developed bone cancers or cataracts or things like that, where prolonged exposure to uh, to radiation can can cause some really uh, severe side effects, and so. Uh, so we think that that physicians are going to be able to prolong their careers by doing this, but also remain safer by doing this. Also, uh, there's there's data that suggests that it's actually a quicker procedure when you do it this way. And I think that that's, that's where we would expect to get to eventually. So let's switch gears and talk about the woven endobridge or web aneurysm embolization system that treats aneurysms. Uh, before we get into talking about the technology, what's been the typical treatment for aneurysms to date? So the two broad categories, most people kind of say it's either clipping or coiling, and that's kind of a really generic way of saying it. But the thing we've been doing the longest is surgical clipping, where we make an incision in the scalp, we remove a portion of the bone, we go in and we put a generally a titanium clip across the neck of the aneurysm, sometimes many, sometimes, um, sometimes one. Many years ago, we started doing coils, where we go in through an artery in the, in the leg and, and more recently in the wrist, and place uh, small coils that, that uh, curl up and, and um, fill the space within the aneurysm. So that, that the clipping versus coil paradigm is, has been around for a while. Over the many years, that 
endovascular techniques have have gotten more uh, advanced. And so we've added better coils, we've added stents, we've had, there there are a bunch of different devices, truthfully, that that will allow us to treat more and more aneurysms effectively through an endovascular method. And and the web is is another one of those devices. And so I would say most aneurysms now are treated endovascularly, and they're the aneurysms that are still treated surgically at most places are, are done so because they're not suitable for endovascular treatment, whether they have very wide neck at the bottom of it, whether it's a, a ruptured patient that they don't feel comfortable placing, um, placing other uh, stents or anything like that that would require them to be on blood thinners. So the, the web is an interesting new device that, you know, we, we got it rushed a, a good while ago, and I think we are, are certainly market leaders as far as doing these cases. And it allows us to treat wide neck aneurysms, also uh, ruptured wide neck aneurysms, if we feel uh, it's indicated to treat aneurysms without having to put them through a surgical clipping. So are there any other benefits outside of the ability to treat ruptured or wide-necked aneurysms that this web system provides? Yeah, so so we can treat any aneurysm with it. And I think that, you know, a lot of the stents that have come around have treated or, or other devices. There's there are a number of different devices, but but a lot of the, the advancements have turned uh, an aneurysm that we would treat endovascularly into maybe another method that we would treat an endovascularly. I think the web's the first device that's come around in a, in a little while that that allows us to to take aneurysms that at least in my hands I would have previously treated surgically because I did not think there was a good endovascular method and and and, um, and treated endovascularly and so I think it's really moved the needle in in my practice and in, in the practice of many people that I know that allows us to take patients who really the best option otherwise would have been surgical clipping and give them an endovascular option. That's why we're we're kind of excited to be able to offer it here at Rush. What about the safety and efficacy of the web system for patients? Can you elaborate on that? Sure. So so the clinical trial, you know, the the, the folks that, that kind of take part in the clinical trial wrote the clinical trial when it was published, say that that it was the safest rollout of any aneurysm device, which is to say, um, clipping, coiling, whatever it was when this first came out, that it was the safest safest device that that has ever been rolled out for aneurysm clipping, at least within the clinical trial. As, as we get more and more experience, we are aware of the fact that it's not a panacea. It's not good for every aneurysm. There are certainly some aneurysms that that we still treat with coils, some that we treat with, with um, stents and coils, some we treat with a different type of stent called flow diverters, and some that we treat with clipping. There's there's a number of options. And I, I think that that this device um, has allowed us to, again, to treat more endovascularly, but it's another tool in our toolbox. And, and, you know, as they say, if the only tool you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And we've got, a, we've got a lot of different tools in our toolbox. And this is one that, that from a safety standpoint, I've been, I've been pleased with, um, you know, the long-term data is continuing to come out. And, and so we're starting to learn more and more technical advances or technical, I guess, nuances about how to make sure that, that, when we treat it with this, the aneurysm goes all the way away and um, and make sure that doesn't need, need additional treatment down the future. And one point of clarification for me is, I know you mentioned that it, it's been on the market for a few years now. Rush is the market leader in terms of using the web system. But can you contextualize just how widely available that system is for academic medical centers or other hospitals? Is it 
do most places have this? Can you provide sure. some context around that? Sure. So, so the first thing is, as as with many devices in our realm, this was actually available in Europe many years before it was available in the states, and so the data that's coming out of Europe gave a lot of people kind of hope for for getting it over to America. So, so there is longer term data. Um, that that comes out of Europe. As far as you know, going through the clinical trial process and getting to the states, now it's FDA approved. You do need to have a, a number of of cases proctored. So if you are someone who's just trying, you know, just starting with the device, you will need to have another physician fly to your institution and proctor you to make sure that that it's safe. I'm actually a proctor for the device, so I do fly around or I can fly around and proctor other physicians to teach them how to use it. So I feel. I feel comfortable with it. This is a device that's available to everyone, uh, but I think what what limits people's use of it is is their experience with it. It takes a number of cases before you can do it on your own and uh, and feel comfortable with it. There's a, another innovative technology that Rush recently incorporated, which is the wrist catheter. It's a minimally invasive approach that enables neurosurgeons to access the aneurysm. You performed the first surgery in the entire world using the wrist catheter. So can you talk about you know, what it is and you know, how it's an improvement over what has been done previously in terms of getting to those um, aneurysms? Yeah, absolutely. So again, these are all patients that, uh, that are tre- being treated endovascularly. And, uh, and the gold standard has always been to go through the femoral artery. So the artery in the in the leg or in the groin, and access the aneurysm, you know, by winding it uh, past uh, through the aorta and into the blood vessels of the brain, and then performing the procedure uh, in the brain. As we are uh, gaining more experience, and again, kind of stealing from the cardiology literature in a lot of ways, um, a, a lot of folks are are starting to to uh, push the envelope as far as treating from the wrist, the radial artery in the in the arm instead of the femoral artery in the leg. And the idea is if we can get the catheter up to the same place from the arm as the leg, there are a number of, of great reasons to do that. Uh, the complications are fewer. So, you know, when we, um, the, the, the risk of, for instance, an aneurysm treatment is quite low. And, and some say, it, it, or some studies suggest about two to 4% of all kind of major complications. But one of the things that can happen when going through the leg is you can get a bleed, you can get a, a retroperitoneal hematoma, you could get a pseudoaneurysm, you could get a number of things with the artery in the leg, which um, which are rare, but can be disastrous if unrecognized. When we go through the artery in the wrist, that is not a uh, consideration, to be honest with you. So there is a safety uh, um, profile, which which benefits, we believe, the going through the radial artery. From a patient satisfaction standpoint, there is no doubt in my mind that patients prefer going through the radial artery instead of the femoral artery. Go through the femoral artery, patients are flat for two hours at a minimum if a closure device that we use works. If not, they're flat for six hours. Um, no one likes being pressed and poked um, in, in the groin, so that is is uncomfortable for some people. And the radial artery, it's like it, it's it's basically an IV. They get a little Band-Aid on their wrist. And so so I've, I have a number of patients who've had angiograms in the past through the leg and angiograms uh, then with me through the arm, and they, uh, to a person, pref- prefer to go through the arm. The reason why this system is, is um, novel is that all the other devices, all the other catheters that we've used 
have been designed to go from the leg. And so you can imagine going from the leg as opposed to going to the arm. If you go into the same place, there's different turns. There's different points where, uh, where a catheter needs uh, support and, um, uh, and allow it to get to the place where it's going. So this is the first catheter that was designed to go from, from the, the radial artery, which allows us to perform neurointerventions. So in addition to the, the safety and the patient satisfaction, the, there's a, a uniqueness about the wrist catheter, which is the threadability or the ability for it to, to, to make those turns a little bit easier for the neurosurgeon. Can you talk about that advantage a little bit as well? Yeah. So, so I think one of the roadblocks in physicians changing from a femoral approach to a radial approach is, um, is the comfort, right? Anyone who trained I don't know, before several years ago, um, did almost every procedure from the femoral artery. And only if there was a, you know, something um, really uh, keeping us from getting to the brain from there, whether it's a, a large aneurysm in the aorta or a blockage or stents or something like that, only then would we go to the radial artery. And so it would be, you know, once every year or two that we'd go radial artery. And it was, it was difficult because the, the catheters were not designed to go from there. When, folks started doing more and more radial, you know, we have the early converters, which are, are those of us who, who saw the benefit real early and, and were comfortable with the learning curve that, that we saw that we had to, had to switch over. But a lot of the folks, you know, we're, we're in the bell curve now as far as adapters, you know, we're starting to see more mainstream acceptance of it. But the folks that are, that are still um, resistant often are resistant because the, um, the devices were not designed to, to get you there. And so now that, now that there is a device that, that allows us to, to get to the, um, to the place we want to go in the brain from, from the wrist, it, um, it's seen a lot more widespread acceptance. And so the bottom line is the catheters that get you there from the femoral artery, they have different points where, uh, where there's support that allows you to get up into the, uh, into the arteries of the brain from from the groin, uh, and those points may not uh, be helpful when going from the arm. And so it's just a different, you know, the, the models that, that were used to develop this device put through some pretty tortuous models to make sure that, that it allowed the, the surgeon to access the, the artery distally. So if the, in those cases that you talked about where the femoral artery was not an option for surgeons to go through and they had to go through the wrist, you know, for those complications that you had talked about, would they use the same catheter as they would have gone through the femoral artery or was it a different catheter? Yeah, it was generally the same one through the, through the femoral artery. The catheters that we have are the catheters that we have. And so, so yes, if, if we were unable to go through the leg and uh, need to go through the arm, it would be the exact same, same catheters from that route. So I want to wrap up our conversation today by highlighting some current research that you're engaged with. Specifically, I want to ask you about the Embolize clinical trial, which is a, a national multi-center clinical trial that's evaluating the use of middle meningeal artery embolization, which is a minimally invasive image-guided approach for patients with subdural hematomas. Can you go into some detail about this trial? Yeah, absolutely. So, so I, I think hopefully this podcast is is kind of highlighting the the fact that that our neurointerventional program I, I think we really lead the way in a, in a lot of in a lot of realms that allows us to 
to expand the way that patients get care and expand the number of patients who can get that care. And the embolized trial is is something that's that I think is is along those same lines. And so from a neurosurgeon standpoint, I do the interventional, but I also do the open surgery. And 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 we get called a lot about subdural hematomas where patients require craniotomies to uh, take the bone off and evacuate the hematoma. A fair number of those patients get recurrences. And so the idea behind this trial is that there is data suggesting that the arteries that supply the dura on the side of the subdurals are the reasons why some of these may recur. And if we can embolize those that one, it's possible that surgery would not be necessary at all. And two, the ones that surgery is necessary, it's possible that we can decrease the chance of them needing repeat surgeries down the line. So the trial is great. It's headed up by Jared Notman at Cornell University and Jason Davies at University of Buffalo. And, um, and it's a national trial that is looking at whether or not this middle meningeal artery embolization for subdural hematomas is safe and effective. And so we've got two arms. One is for patients that we would really like to avoid doing surgery at all. So we randomize them to either getting the embolization versus observation. And the other arm is folks that we know are going to get surgery. And so it's surgery alone versus embolization plus surgery. And, and again, based on the preliminary data that led up to this trial, we're optimistic that the embolization will decrease, will one, decrease the need for, for surgical evacuation in some patients, and two, for the patients that do get surgical evacuation, will hopefully decrease the chance that they recur and need additional surgery. And the trial is open for recruitment right now. Yeah, we're one of the busier sites so far in the, in the country. Patients have been happy with it and those of us that are the treating physicians have been have been happy with how patients have been engaged with the trial. It's a it's a good option. And again, I think it it is potentially turning pathological diagnosis entity that only had one real option into one that has other options. And so I like being able to to help push the field forward in that direction. Well, Dr. Crowley, thank you so much for an informative and enlightening conversation today. Thanks so much for having me, Dan. I appreciate your time.